Hello and welcome back to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Kieran Sanger. A podcast where two millennials discuss their recent reading, new releases and current literary happenings. So just keep watching. Oh, no, nope. listening, listening. No. Oh. <laughs> Hello and welcome back, welcome back to Back to the Books with me, Kieran Sanger, and as always I'm joined by my lovely friend Isabel. Hello. Hi Kieran. How goes things? Yes, I'm melting in this lovely heat wave we're having, um, as we've just discussed my little patch of redness on my legs from being out in the sun too long. is just waving at me and saying hello. With fashionably ripped jeans, I think that's your own fault. It is, I forgot. I, yeah, I got carried away reading my book and I was enjoying the, the sun on my face, feeling a nice youth kiss glow. And then I looked down and it's just a nice shade of ham. <laughs> little, little gammon strips on your legs. Oh, yeah. It's like a Tory party conference in there. <laughs> oh, gammon joke. Nice. Forgetting um, political people. <laughs> satire. Hmm. Anyway, so we're here as always, to talk about books. And this week we're doing a very simple current reads or like what we have recently read and what we're currently reading. Uh, Nice and easy. Give the people what they want, etc, etc. So I just think we should dive in straight away. What about you? Sounds good. Sounds good. Let's go. Let's go. Let's dive in. Woo! Woo! I'm going to start then. I'm going to start with a interesting little discovery of mine. Um, it's called Sex and Lies by Leila Slamani. And this is translated from the French by Sophie Lewis and published by Faber. Um, so Leila Slamani is a f- francophone Moroccan author. And she's most famous for doing like the lullaby and Adele. I don't know if you've seen either of those. The lullaby rings a bell. Yeah, I think it's also called The Nanny in some places. Yeah, it rings faintest of bells, but it's yeah. not something I'm majorly familiar with. Yeah, so they're, they're both kind of crimey, thrillery-esque books, and they both revolve around sort of really unlikable women. And I think mm-hmm. Adele, um, her, I think her first novel to be published in England, um, it revolves around a woman who is very kind of... Um, sexually predatory you know she's very um she's sort of sexually obsessed and people that this sex and lies comes from discussions she had with people about the fact that they were surprised or maybe taken aback or maybe even a little bit offended by the fact that a moroccan woman would write something like this Uh so um this is all uh knowledge that i've gleaned from the book this isn't stuff that i've um i kind of already knew I mean, I knew it a little bit to some extent, but what I'm about to say is mostly taken from the book itself. So Morocco is a place that is quite sexually repressive. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, um, uh, Islam is the state religion. And so there's a quite a tussle between um, group that you would call Islamists, who are people who think that Islam in its sort of, what you might call its purest, most extreme form should be the state religion and that should be enforced Mm. as law and people who want a more modern, secular relationship with their faith. Um, so people who, uh, like we have, you know, we, we have religions, but we have state law and the two are separate and um, you you can't be prosecuted for a religious issue through a state law, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, and, and it's quite a conservative country. Um, so things like 
sex before marriage, homosexuality, abortion, all that, not looked at kindly at all. Leila Slamani is in this book. She weaves together her own research, her own kind of personal memoir and testimony, along with um, short snippets of interviews she conducted with other women who approached her when she was doing the book tour for her books in Morocco. Mm -hmm. And all of it kind of comes together to basically talk about the ways in which uh, Morocco as a state and Morocco as a group of individuals all living on the same lump of rock operate really differently when it comes to sex. So as we've discussed, Mm -hmm. it's a very, very conservative culture. There's a lot of expectation of, you know, no sex before marriage, um, uh, before marriage, uh, mm. often virginity certificates are something that get brought up, you Ooh, know. okay. Yeah, hymen restoration surgery is oh. a lucrative business over there. Yes. Oh, my God. Despite the fact that hymens don't work that way, but whatever, that's a discussion for oh, another time. okay, wow. Um, yes, so, <laughs> which is a lovely thing to think about. But what Leila Zamani is basically saying in this book is that these things are the ways in which kind of the power structures frame sex. But at the same time, you have this whole underground situation where for the most part, a lot of people are just doing it Mm. anyway. You know, teenagers are having sex, you know, when they're dating. Older people are having extramarital affairs or, you know, widowed people are seeing each other without getting married again. Um, You know, backstreet abortion goes on. You know, no matter how conservative a person or a family may appear, a lot of the time the sexual repression is actually just pushing their personal kind of expression of their sexuality underground. Mm -hmm. And so the, the book describes a kind of double life that everybody's leaving leading you know everyone's batman (laughs) a more sexually um precarious batman yeah (laughs) i mean he was always pretty sexually out there though really come on you always had like a yeah i mean you don't run around in a in a leather animal costume and not be a little bit sexualized (laughs) but you know whatever but yeah so um you know on the surface everybody's very conservative nobody has sex before marriage um you know Mm. gay people don't exist i don't know if you noticed that uh, gay people don't actually exist in the world especially not in morocco no (laughs) no it's all a lie it's all it's all a myth it's all a myth yeah so all of this stuff is uh on yeah so to to the kind of state identity none of this stuff happens but of course this stuff happens because morocco is like anywhere else in that it is populated by humans and humans tend to have sex with each other yeah 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 Uh, it was a really interesting book for me to read particularly because i you know no one no nobody being that surprised i'm a white lady who is very liberal um and so (laughs) we're good what (laughs) and stop it i I know this could be the end of our friendship (laughs) and so the discussions around um sexual repression in muslim countries are often ones where i'm like whoa i'm not gonna touch that bye someone else can talk about that Um, and and often it's not really you know not really one's place to have an opinion um however this was a really enlightening a really interesting read for me particularly because it was a really nice way of engaging with these ideas in a way that didn't devolve into taking sides uh, moral arguments mm. you know politicizing everything um, the same so mm-hmm. these arguments are often what you and i would encounter on twitter for example you know and it's always about yes. there's a right side and a wrong side there is a clean-cut answer mm. and you have to kind of be able to Pick yeah exactly side. you have to plant yourself firmly on one side and you have to agree with that side but as Leila Slamani mm-hmm. points out, a lot of these issues are much more complicated than that. And she talks about the ways in which, um, you know, this isn't the doing of like an evil, hideous, uh, you know, group of people. You know, M- Moroccans aren't inherently evil. Of course they're not. Um, Islam mm-hmm. isn't inherently evil. The problem is that um, Morocco is caught in this double bind where it is both um, 
it, it is both trying to yearn for modernity and uh, advance itself kind of into into a new age. But what that age looks mm-hmm. like is the West. And for somewhere like Morocco, the West is often a place that you have to try and resist because it, it feels mm. like a threat to your traditional culture, your traditional values, and often uh, the, the sort of fundamentals of Islam itself. Well, it's temptation, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. To, I mean, in terms of religion, you think of like Christianity, the whole Adam and Eve being tempted. I guess in certain cultures, the idea of the West is very much that same version of temptation and you know if you, if you are tempted you are morally corrupt and you are morally damned yeah yeah definitely there's she talks a lot about when discussions get brought up around women's um women's rights and would naturally go with that women's sexual freedoms she is often shut down by people who say you want us to be just like the west and um when they say that what they mean is you know uh or what what tends to come up is, is sort of hyperbole, like you want to turn Morocco into one giant whorehouse, you know. The, the, the West is something that is both constantly aspired to, uh-huh. but also pushed away for fear of what it might represent or the consequences of sort of being taken over. Uh-huh. And so in that way, it's kind of understandable to see that Morocco and a lot of nations like it struggle with this constant dual identity and the way in which um, the the way that they lead their lives as individuals conflicts with the way that Morocco leads its values as a state, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, completely. It's it's not bizarre, but like, I'm trying to almost articulate my thoughts about this, but it's like you say, kind of, everyone's human at the end of the day, and everyone has urges and everyone has desires. And what's interesting, even in this country, people who use the excuse of like, decent family morals to oppress minority groups such as uh, homosexuality uh, being taught in schools Um, I mean there's a a much bigger wider argument about that issue but it's again using that as almost like a card like you know moral values family moral values kind of as a I don't know almost like kind of well, that's that, that's my my card. I'm putting that on the table. Now you go the West. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the placard that you wheel yes. out to every di- every mm. single kind of political division, like the family crest. Yeah, but at the same time, I think that um, that happens a lot for people um, uh, who lean kind of closer to our political beliefs as well. So there's some really really interesting stuff in there about the extent to which um, to take one example, headscarves. The extent to which. For some women, that is an expression of liberation. Mm. It's a personal choice. For some women, mm. they feel pressured into it. For some women, they choose to out of um, mm-hmm. a sort of almost like mm-hmm. a leaning in to patriarchal values. And she, she questions the extent to like where a woman, I think, I think sometimes there's a kind of lazy argument around kind of, well, women can just make their own choices. You know, that's freedom. Women making their own choices. And she does bring up the idea that women's choices aren't made in vacuums you know i shave my legs if we didn't as a society demand that women didn't have any leg hair would i shave my hair would i shave my legs probably not you know people are like you know i shave my legs for myself and it's like nobody's it's december no one's seen your legs in four months you know and (laughs) (laughs) but it's your choice though at the end of the day if you want to shave your legs you goddamn shave your legs but at the same time is my choice not just being made 
in line with a patriarchal society that demands that I you have to have smooth turn legs. my body into a more appealing say you know mm. a, a, in in a way that is also capitalist because the whole thing was made up to sell razor blades you get what I mean yeah no ultimately, completely it's very um systemic yeah the difference between an individual's choice and the fact that an, that individual makes a choice in a wider kind of uh, network of social and moral pressures is something that doesn't have easy answers. You know, we, we can't mm. easily damn, for example, headscarves as uh, as oppressive and evil. We also can't say they're liberating and they're fantastic. Like any personal choice, you know, your body shouldn't have to be political, but it often is, especially if you're mm. a woman. And there's a lot in here about how women's bodies in particular, and this is all over the world, this isn't in just in Morocco, um, mm. kind of represent the state of the nation and national moral panic. And that's why, oh, wow, you know, okay. laws laws and education regarding women's sexuality swing back and forth on, on a pendulum, whereas men's, it's kind of like the default. Mm. And so, yeah, there's... It, um, obviously, it is tricky to talk about without wanting to kind of tread on anything that maybe, you know, I, I have not got the education to talk about. Mm. Uh, one of the bits that I like the most is when she... Um, she really emphasises the need for a freedom of speech to be able to talk about this these things because what she really emphasises is the fact that, you know, Moroccans are doing sex a lot. Obviously, they're people. What they're not, talking, what they're not doing is talking mm-hmm. about it. And so it is this very taboo subject. And, of course, what happens is when people make something taboo, all that happens is people become obsessed with it. You know, mm. it becomes this forbidden fruit. Mm. She talks about the ways in which that these taboos um, kind of shut down an ability to have a healthy relationship between men and women so even if you know you fall in love and get married there will always be these issues between the two of you purely because you live in a society that creates that tension through his Mm -hmm. expectations so i'll just read this tiny little bit for you when you see a woman as a machine for procreation a thing that isn't meant to feel pleasure and when her body is practically your own property how are you meant to have a healthier approach to sex moroccan men are oppressed They're frustrated. Everything that has to do with our appetites, our desires is rejected because we've taught ourselves to demonize all that. And so obviously that quote is pointing out that, you know, this isn't about, you know, one half of the population actively repressing the other. You know, this is a tangled web in which, you know, we all have a skewed view of the other gender. You know, we all have a skewed view of the other kind of established sex, if you like. Um, And and because Mm. of that, even relationships that could be pure and healthy and passionate become kind of soulless and difficult Mm -hmm. because they are completely couched in all of these horrible horrible things and another thing that I really loved about it and I have another little highlighted passage if I may um (laughs) is she she kind of wants Islam and Morocco in particular to kind of reclaim the sexuality that inherently has um so I talked about how for Morocco as a state uh sexual repression comes a lot from fear of the west um so I'll just read this little bit Moroccan swing between fantasy and vilification. We're the fifth biggest consumer of internet porn in the world, yet at the same time we're constantly calling for modesty. These days, we're confronted with our own conflicting identities. Sex is associated with the other, the decadent West, while Moroccan and Muslim identity stands for virtue and modesty. But we're forgetting everything. We're forgetting that it's we Arabs, we Muslims, who shocked the West with our erotic texts in the 15th century. We invented the realm of the erotic. We're suffering from a collective amnesia. And I think that in particular is is something that really stood out to me. And um, if I did find it really interesting. There are elements where she goes through passages that are taken by uh, Islamist sort of extremists uh, and used to imply that Muslim faith 
kind of implicitly wants you to uh implicitly allows for control of women's bodies and is used by like you know british and american right-wing stupid people to say Mm -hmm. that islam is inherently misogynist and she goes through and she looks at the ways that those original passages have been translated and she shows the ways in which things have been twisted over time and you know instead of this kind of lush nourishing idea about sexuality and marriage and compassionate behavior um, it becomes twisted up into this like iron grip of you know hyper morality and hyper vigilance around sexuality and women's bodies and yeah it was Mm -hmm. just such a good read for me you know and it's really nice to be able to read something and experience these ideas in a way that allows for nuance and allows for complexity and doesn't kind of desperately cling to easy answers because you know any 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 perceived moral slippage is somehow like a betrayal of your own personal political mm. beliefs if that makes sense so yeah i'd recommend it's it's not a super easy read especially if you're not massively kind of uh, accustomed mm. to those conversations but i definitely definitely don't regret reading it awesome i think it's important as well that it's opening the doors for those conversations as well about how we need to have these conversations and it's just about first steps as well so i'm now adding it to the list right so i want to talk about a book you might not have heard of it's not really been around a book called Normal People by Sally Rooney. Oh, what, what was that? Sorry, Paul Paul Leepel. I've, I've never yeah. heard of that. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the one. Um, obviously, we do jest. Um, normal people. Can't say it right now. Normal people. <laughs> Porno people. <laughs> Porno people. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, Sally Rooney, if you're listening. Um, normal people by Sally Rooney is a book that was released a few years ago and won various awards and accolades including waterstones book of the year and it was even shortlisted for the booker have i made that up or it's definitely it on the booker list somewhere was it long listed oh no i do feel like it probably got shortlisted i don't know we should have looked this up shouldn't we never mind oh well i think the hype it got i would have imagined it would have been shortlisted but it's a it's a second novel um, her first was Conversation with Friends. And this is the story of two characters called Connell and Marianne, who grow up in the same town, small town in the west of Ireland. Um, Connell is a very popular and well-liked boy, kind of like the alpha male jock. He does sports, but he's also really clever and is adored socially by everyone. Marianne is, uh, to quote the back of the book, a loner. She isn't very well liked. She's perceived as being a bit strange, a bit weird. But the two are interwoven because Connell's mum actually works for Marianne's family as a cleaner. Marianne's family is a very wealthy, very well-off family with a very big house. And Connell, it's just him and his mum, very working class, um, don't have a lot of money, very small house. So they are introduced via Connell's mum and when they start speaking something happens in which they become fascinated by each other and it's a not a straightforward thing of boy meets girl it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more complicated than that and what happens is you follow their story from college to university and afterwards and how these two people are just interwoven throughout various circumstances you know the good the bad and 
about how these two people are so clearly destined to be with each other, even if not necessarily in a romantic way, and they can't help but just fall into each other's lives. So when you kind of describe it like that, you would think, oh, it's just a love story. I'm bored. Tap me out. But I think what's really (laughs) interesting about this, it's on the surface, a book about how these two people cannot communicate. These two people from very different social backgrounds who are clearly fascinated by one each other, yet they can't talk to each other. And it's a big crux of the novel in terms of like, there's a lot of things that happen that could have been resolved with a simple conversation and things get lost in translation and yeah. yeah it's just it's it's frustrating but also it's really insightful I think to how our generation are with relationships it's not a straightforward you meet someone you like them well that's it we're going to be together now bye-bye I think it's a lot more complicated than that and it's really interesting on how the novel really looks at uh, class identity, your social backgrounds, and how they are flipped and subverted quite a lot through the book. So obviously, like I said, Connell is a very well-liked at the top of the social hierarchy at school. And then as soon as they move to university, where you can obviously rebrand, you can rediscover yourself and reform yourself, he finds himself at the bottom of this hierarchy, whereas Marianne climbs higher and higher, and she's the new popular girl, and he's the strange loner that no one really wants to talk to. And what's even more fascinating is how he perceives others. He thinks he can find himself at Trinity um, College in Dublin, where him and Marianne both go. And his first or second lecture, he describes how he reads the book and all these other students are talking about the book in this really finessed articulate way but then to find out they've not actually read it and he's kind of like well what's the point in that if you're going to go to university and study and not even read the book yeah yeah it's kind of those strokes of pretentiousness of how he thinks he's going to be in a circle of people that he can relate to and aspire up to and yet he finds himself more alienated than ever And with Marianne, what's really interesting is how, yes, she comes from a very well-off, very um, privileged background, but she comes from a very abusive household at the same time. And because she normalises that behaviour, again, that keyword normal, which does crop up again and again in the book, she seeks very um, dark and very dangerous attitudes in sexual relationships she seeks very dangerous behavior in terms of she wants to be uh, hit um quite a lot but she sees that as something that's normal and she likes that but when connell says no i don't want to do that she rejects him and it's just really interesting on how the behavior you seek out is in your eyes normal because you grew up with that and especially when you think the other people around her would think she has it all because she's got a, a villa in Italy and she's got money, she's got her own flat in Dublin. But it it doesn't hide or replace feelings of being accepted or being wanted. And I think what both characters long for in this book is a sense of normality. The word, like I said, uh, normal, it keeps cropping up again and again in the book. But I think the word is so subjective as to what Connell and Marianne both want and what they both aspire to. 
their versions of normal are very different to each other, even though they think it's the same, but it's actually not. And maybe it's that sense of normality that binds them together, yet alienates them at the same time. Yeah, I think I, I'm really interested in the idea of Marianne being um, effectively coming from what you consider, like, let's face it, enormous privilege. And yet uh-huh. having her life kind of, I mean, listen, listen, if you want to be if you want to be smacked while you're having a good time, that's absolutely none of my business. But in, in this context, it's clearly constructed that she's trying to like she, she's working out difficulties from her childhood as opposed to engaging with that in a healthy way you get me mm. um yeah <laughs> and it is interesting as you said that um the idea of normality and i think sometimes um it's always important to remember that like everybody's dealing with something you know even if you're looking at someone and going oh they their life seems great um you know it's their they, they have everything they could they could want for nothing mm. you know what could possibly be wrong with them uh, and you, you know even though lots of people don't go through an abusive childhood everyone's kind of got their stuff that they're dealing with mm-hmm. and I, I do like how this is kind of um add the way you've described it, it really shining a light into a life that you would often stereotype mm. um both ways so marianne learning about connell and connell learning about marianne both of them learning that normality is a completely fractured and pointless stupid abstract concept yeah. because everybody's lives are both wildly different and kind of universal mm. you know we all want for the same thing we just experience it all differently. And another thing that I really like that you were talking about was Connell being at university and all of these fancy people not having read the book. Oh, I really we, yeah, we've um, been there. Yeah. But also, so I was watching this video with Sally Rooney um, and I'll send it to you and I'll see if I can put it in the show notes because it was really interesting about how, how she was talking about the culture or, or the way in which books even when they are talking about really like political, you know, anti-establishment, Marxist, socialist themes, still participate in capitalism because often what they are is a commodity that you buy for, to you pay for to allow you entrance into a kind of cultured community. Mm. And um, she was talking and it was really interesting, especially, you know, you and I, participate in online reading culture you know we have bookstagrams we 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 have a fucking podcast (laughs) um and and the idea that books become like accessories in your home and they um you know you you buy certain books um, and read certain material to join certain groups cultured groups Uh, and that hit me really hard and so yeah it's it's really interesting to think about someone who has come from a very non-reader readering readering (laughs) has come from a really non kind of uh, not a bookish background that you would consider. So someone who was raised, I presume, working class, mm-hmm. not very well off. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a boy running around with his mates at school, finding literature and, and it really igniting something inside of him mm. and him experiencing it almost in a pure way, a way that's kind of pushed, a way that's less entangled in that sort of weird cultural, your objects are your identity thing. Mm, definitely. And sort of going on from that, it's interesting that Connell at first doesn't even want to read English at university because he's feared that it goes against this stereotype that he's almost built up for himself at school as the alpha male, the jock, the ladies man. And his friends, uh, in a sort of, I'm paraphrasing, kind of say, oh, well, you know, reading English, oh, it's a bit gay, isn't it, mate? And he kind of laughs it off. And Marianne actually yeah. encourages him to say, no, if you want to read English, read English. And he does. And because yeah. he, he loves to read and he, slowly in time breaks away from that mould that he's created for himself back home in that small west uh, village in Ireland and 
another thing the book does really well, and I have to say the TV show does really well, is shine a light on mental health, uh, more specifically male mental health. Because it's quite obvious that from the start, kind of like what you were saying, we all suffer words. We all suffer things and we all have things that we've gone through, like been through the mill. And it's quite clear that Connell is going through very difficult things. He's just really unsure of how to talk about them. Again, we've got that lack of communication. And it's not till something happens near the end of the book, I obviously won't spoil it because you've not read it yet, um, that almost shakes him and opens up his eyes to the pull that your roots have, like your small town, working class background roots. And he has this realisation that no matter how far you can go and how high, high up the ladder you can go, ultimately your roots will still kind of bring you down and will bring yeah. you back. And I think that's what he fears. I think he fears the trappings of a very small working class village where there's not much um, sense of accomplishment or sense of prosperity. And I think the fear of that is a big cause of his depression and what spirals his mental health and is something that Marianne is a gateway to help with. Like you say, they're both dealing with a lot. And you you just think if they had a nice sit down over a cup of tea and talked about things, the book would be <laughs> half the size that it is. But ultimately yeah. it's it's not. But I think it is important to have those scenes or chapters, whatever you want to call them, with male mental health. And especially with someone like Connell, who you'd see at school and you would just automatically put them into a box. And yeah. I really like that. It was something that really resonated a lot with me. Um, and it was done so well on screen as well, because half the time you think with um, adaptations, they won't do justice to the book. But I personally do think they did it absolutely spot on. But ultimately, it was a book that I, it sounds awful, I didn't want to like because the hype was huge. And I kind Yeah, totally. You get a really bloody minded, like, a bit of shit. And uh, we discussed before the podcast, Sally Rooney is only one year older than me and I'm furious at her for it. <laughs> How very dare you? How dare you be born in 1991? It's it's damn near <laughs> sinful is what it is. Let me tell you yeah. that. But it does pull you in. Um, Olivia Lang, amongst other authors, has praised it as being, she's one of the best modern writers of the time. And I, I do have to agree with how she does pull you in to this fractured, tempestuous, complicated, but beautiful relationship between two people and shines a light on how young people, it's not as simple as just boy meets girl, girl meets boy. I think there's so much more complexity and nuance to it. And it's seldom talked about, I think, in books. And Yeah, I think there's this weird drive currently towards like, any relationship that you're allowed to show in a book has to be like the pinnacle of healthy. And it's mm. weird because it's such a strange restriction to put on what is an unbelievably complicated and ever-changing, ever-fluctuating experience between two flawed human beings. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm. if you've got a healthy relationship, good for you. I want to read about Two idiots. <laughs> Two idiots working it out in a long, drawn-out, frustrating way because that's what people do. And it's, again, you know, normal. But yeah. I think to have a pitch-perfect relationship with no fighting or no... 
ups or downs, I think that's not reflective of what a normal relationship is. It's what people aspire and it's yeah. what people think normal is. But the reality is so much more different than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, people are, yeah. It's, it's always really bizarre, isn't it, when people are like, this wasn't a healthy relationship. They argued lots. It's like, well, you know, it covers 30 years of their life. Of course they argued a lot. Mm. And another thing I was thinking about when we were talking about sex and lies was in this book, sex is quite dominant in the chapters uh, when Connell and Marianne first begin this I don't even know if it's a relationship, but they begin sleeping with each other. Dynamic? Yeah, dynamic, um, dichotomy, yeah. yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's a very intense sexual relationship, but one with consent as well, which again, not a lot you see seldom on screen nowadays or in books. And I think that was really important as well. And it's kind of what holds them together, really, uh, Marianne and Connell, despite everything, it's the, the sex, the the physical act of sex actually, this is cliche as it sounds, but it bonds them, like, despite everything, that keeps yeah. them together. It's like the string that they keep hanging on to, even when they have a really bad falling out or they don't talk. That sexual desire and that sexual relationship is something that, like, holds them together, especially with... Rooney writing about Marianne's desires to be hit and to have these dangerous thoughts, I thought was really, really interesting as well. And how violence from her home, her home life, kind of creates that self-need for violence. And it takes Connell to be the person that has to have that um, intervention and say no you you don't we can have this relationship we can have the sexual relationship without that like we can remove it and yet it's something that she initially struggles with at first that's that's fascinating as well because i think often there's a portrayal that you know that sort of thing is often um if it's a partnership between a man and a woman particularly if they're young it's often that the woman is being pressured into it by the man and so that's an interesting reversed way to kind of present it as something that you know the woman's kind of asking for and the man's refusing Mm -hmm. and yeah I I do think that that's interesting that that sounds really cool and I think just one more thing as well is how Connell well they both represent growth for each other and how you outgrow a sense of feeling stuck in those social trappings and how you can outgrow them and you can be nurtured with the love and respect that you you do deserve and because they think they they both feel like they don't but when they sort of give it to each other despite the nuanced complexity of their relationship it encourages them to outgrow them a former version of themselves and it it is beautiful um despite the older male critics that are just damned to hate this book just because it's millennial (laughs) But it was written by a young lady. Of course it's garbage, Kieran. Of course it's garbage. <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. Um, I didn't want to believe the hype, but it won me over with just so much to love and so much to talk about beyond the relationship between Connell and Marianne. And now it is a stonkingly good TV adaptation as well. So I'm afraid you've got no choices about, but you're going to have to finally read it. I'm sorry. Ugh, I am, aren't I? And you know the worst thing, Karen? Mm-hmm. Did you just call me Karen? You know the worst thing, Karen? <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> I 
Yes. Yeah, so thanks for everything, Isabel. Thanks. I'm just going to go and throw myself out the window. Bye. Bye. Right. <laughs> oh, he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> you know the worst thing? Kieran? Yes. I'm probably going to fucking love it, aren't I? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Good luck. Fine. <laughs> Fine. 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 Okay, so another book that I recently read and finished only a handful of nights ago was Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. And I have to thank you pretty much, Isabel, because you introduced me to this way back when on episode two of our podcast. Two? Yeah. <laughs> it's been years it since we started. It's been 84 <laughs> years. And yeah, I was so interested and intrigued about this novel that kind of subverts gothic tropes and expectations and you said how funny it was so I finally ordered it and read it and you were right (laughs) round of applause for Isabel well done I don't know why I need a round of applause I'm always right it's my default state (laughs) (laughs) I am never wrong but I really did enjoy it I think (sighs) problem's not the right word but I think what I found with Austin is that she does sacrifice plot for more like social commentary and social observations of the time of yeah. like different classes and you know the gender roles of men and women etc etc and i'm not gonna lie the first 150 pages i was like mm, okay nothing's really happening yet but you know okay they'll get there eventually and we got past the halfway yeah. point and i was like Northanger Abbey's not even been mentioned yet and I'm really concerned that there's like a little bit of book left (laughs) and we're not there. (laughs) Jane is just trolling you, yeah. Yeah, I felt that's what it was. But then when we got there, it was fine. Um, But I could kind of forgive that because it was really, really funny. Like the narrator, because you don't really find out who the narrator is, she kind of just, well, presumably she imposes the story with like little observations or kind of little tangents like one of my favorite ones is when mrs allen is in birth with catherine and she meets her friend uh, mrs thorpe and mrs thorpe is like oh hello mrs allen how wonderful it is to see you and the narrator just goes by the way if i'm gonna let mrs thorpe continue talking it'll take at least four chapters so we're just gonna move along yes i love how much control like the narrator has over the story because she's not just like a a sort of passive relayer of what happened she actually like despite the fact that obviously the narrator isn't a character in the novel it's this like very it's a voice with a personality and that personality is 100% 100% snark um, and she yeah like you said like she crafts the story and she is mm. actively telling like I think when we were talking before about it you were saying like it's like Jane Austen sat you down in a coffee shop and gone oh my god you aren't gonna believe this and yeah. yeah yeah I love how it's crafting and actively crafting a story as opposed to what you get now which is often a third person narrator sits back from the story and is mm. just a, a sort of passive personality like relayer of what happened yeah, and I think it's interesting to have a narrator that is full of life and full of opinions rather than just, I'm here to tell you a story. I like yeah. that this narrator quite audibly intercuts the story and she sort of describes Catherine as her creation in like the certain phrases that she uses, like, my dear Catherine, or I can't remember another word that she uses for it, but it had this sort of idea of, she's mine my creation and i'm telling her story 
but I'm still gonna impose what I think as well. So I just think it's really interesting how it's not a straightforward, let me sit down and tell you a story. I love that. Yes, yeah. And what (laughs) I text you, I think late one night when I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, John Thorpe is literally the rodent man from Fleabag. (laughs) And Oh my God, yes. (laughs) I know you've not seen Fleabag, but he's a character literally in the screenplay called Rodent Man with really big, horrid teeth that overlap his lips and extremely posh, extremely pretentious. And Fleabag is kind of like, ugh, you're a douche, but you'll kind of do. And the whole time when John Thorpe was speaking to Catherine, kind of being like, oh, I know what girls like. I know what girls like when they write letters because they don't know when to stop and they they talk about nothing, but they can go on for pages. And I was like, dude, like, (laughs) fuck off. Yeah, there are some extraordinary men in this. uh, So like, I thought it was interesting that even Henry Tilney's kind of a dick. Like he's he's probably one of Austin's better characters like I think we've been through this before like Austin doesn't really write love stories she writes marriage plots the two are different and so Mm. a lot of her heroines end up their victory isn't that they've married the man of their dreams it's that they've married somebody who is financially stable and that they don't hate Um, and Mm -hmm. Tilney I think is one of her better ones but even he's like weirdly mansplainy um yeah was it John Thorpe that you were talking about when he was talking about um or when Catherine was talking about how much Anne Radcliffe she reads. Oh, Anne Radcliffe, cool, back to episode two. Um, and John Thorpe is like, that's nonsense, you should read these. And then she's like, Anne Radcliffe wrote those too. Yes, yes, yes. And he's literally like, uh, um, 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 I-, I must go, I must be away on my horse and carriage. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> is that my squire I hear calling? Run. <laughs> Run, Lillian. But it's so true, though, because it's that classic mansplaining thing. Oh, those aren't proper books. You must read these. And she's kind of like, um, yeah. um, um, but she wrote those too. And yeah, it's just, it's hilarious, but also quite gross at the same time. Cause obviously you still see that behavior perpetuated today, especially online, which really sucks. Yeah. Being a lady on Twitter is great. Yeah. What I find interesting about Henry Tilney though, like in my head, I don't know why, but you know, you kind of just automatically give someone a character or you kind of put their character on someone else that exists so for example yeah rodent you're man. Like fan cast yeah them. so john thought was uh rodent man from fleabag henry tilney first person that popped into my mind was eddie redmayne and i don't know why oh, i think that i think that makes sense i could see that yeah the sort of like gentle like slightly effeminate kind of figure because obviously henry tilney's not like his father who's like a brash kind of gruff army guy like Henry Tilney's you know mm. he reads romance he reads gothic romance and he's not ashamed of it he knows his muslins I was reading it being like he might be gay but uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was like yeah I think he mentioned muslin cloths and I was just a bit like hang on Mrs Allen and Catherine had a whole chapter talking about muslin cloths and now you know about it mm. Mm. what else are you hiding sir yeah but uh yeah I I, I see Eddie Redmayne yeah because he's definitely the slightly more gentle one of the more gentle kind of um yeah, mm. effeminate in a good way. Not that effeminate is bad, but you know, a man who is effeminate in a good way kind of uh, kind of characteristics. And kind of the way he winds up Catherine when they're on their way finally to Northanger Abbey and he kind of winds her up uh, and says, oh, you know, what if your room is full of secrets and there's a, a violent storm and the wardrobes hide this and kind of winds her up and she takes it so seriously that she's like, ah, yeah. oh my goodness, what am I get- letting myself in for? 
And you were so right in episode two when you're talking about how she ventures onto this like gothic quest about what happened to Mrs. Tilney and what, you know, the secret um, contraption in my room, what does it hide? And it's literally a list of laundry. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, like this is why Henry Tilney isn't my fave. Isn't it annoying that he says all these things and he like builds up this expectation. And then when Catherine does treat Northanger Abbey like it's a gothic house and like is running around trying to find out who the murderer is and and uncover the secret passageways, he gives her this really patronising pat on the head like, don't be silly, Catherine, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, he treats her like everything that they've talked about was just like nonsense. He starts acting like... So for, for me, what that reveals is that Henry Tilney although he reads gothic romance, doesn't understand them in the way Catherine does and doesn't appreciate the social commentary that they Mm. have. He reads them purely as fantastical fiction, which, as we discussed in episode two, is Mm. what gothic romance, like, hides its social commentary as. And so I do think it was an interesting, like, victory for Catherine in that, yes, Catherine is this derpy country bumpkin and Henry's patronising her, but Catherine is clearly cleverer and more, like socially astute than him purely because she understands the the implications of gothic novels as opposed to just reading them surface level i don't know what you think he like you say kind of gives her a little pat on the head like oh you silly girl and i think you're meant to feel that because she's from like a smaller background um of a lower class it's not really sort of gone into detail except that she doesn't have much money um so automatically she's not as clever as he is even though like she is and she enjoys them for what they are but she can go deeper and explore more and really take more out of the book like you say on those like social commentary values and those social moral lessons as well and I think it's that whole thing that John Thorpe says as well kind of women read these fantastic novels and men read more you know engaging critical thinking stuff and it's just like oh please do one get in the sea so another thing that i really liked was obviously isabella is in a romantic relationship with catherine's brother and as book one ends they're sort of happy together catherine's father has given them permission a blessing to be wed and then you discover that again i could be paraphrasing but What's his name? Is it James, his brother, the brother? Uh, well, it's name? been a while since I read it, but I think so. Yeah, that that sounds right. James, James Morland. Morland. Yeah. yeah. So he actually hasn't got a lot of money. Yeah. And Isabella's a bit like, yeah. that doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> and, and then Henry Tilney's sexy brother, Frederick, comes on the scene and keeps quite obviously flirting with Isabella. Yeah. And she's like, oh, away, away with you, good sir. But also, no. Like, Dude. Yeah. yeah. She's like, dude, you're like totally about to marry my brother. What are you doing? Yeah. Could you maybe keep um, your corset to yourself, lady? Yeah. And then obviously it transpires that she leaves James and pursues Frederick. But what I thought was more interesting, because you actually brought this up, was, yeah, you could instantly dismiss her as oh she's a cruel character why has she done this but like you say it's actually a very smart social move because women at the time didn't have control of their own money and they just want to aspire to higher places in the world than just be like a thing to be looked at yeah that's the thing i think every single jane austen novel has a villain woman character or like a villainous lady character and you're supposed to not like them because they're standing in the way of 
what the protagonist wants. But at the same time, every single one of these women is dealing with the same pressures and the same kind of urgent need to find financial stability and social stability Mm. that the protagonist is, you know. And and I do think that even though, obviously, the narrator does create them as unlikable, it it is still infused with the fact that, like, these are the reasons that the women in these books are pitted against one another, not because one of them is horribly immoral, but because ultimately it doesn't matter who you love if they've got no money, you know, because you can't earn your own money. You cannot survive if you don't have the financial support and social standing of a male relative, be it your husband or your father. And so, mm. yeah, I think that's it. as exactly as you said, you know, while you can be like, oh, Isabella, what, like, what a dickhead. There's, oh, there's the limit to how much you can dislike her because ultimately mm. she knows the situation. Again, you know, Catherine is educated through um, the Gothic novels. Isabella has had like the sort of the women's social school of hard knocks. You know, she understands the actual lay of the land and the fact that she's, basically a, a a a you know livestock on the market really yeah yeah and it's a shame because i didn't even think of that when i first read it and then you sort of said oh but actually think about it like this and i was like oh my goodness yeah that is exactly it it reminds me a lot of actually they um that famous speech in little women where florence Pugh as amy talks about how marriage is only ever an economic proposition and that's all yeah, it ever completely. is that's the thing there's so much moralizing like you know now and then obviously it's less of an economic prospect now but um back then just so much moralizing about uh how women um you know women being conniving it's a little bit uh so you know mary wollstonecraft's um vindication of the rights of women she specifically mm-hmm. talks about how the, the social um co- the social structures and the fact that women are ultimately objects trying to find the most financially viable partner how it creates women like Isabella, you know, like a lot of these women, you know, conniving and Mm. um, scheming and two-faced and just in it for the money. And Mary Wollstonecraft, instead of damning them, says, yeah, of course, how can we, how can we create this society and then have a problem with women acting like that? Because that's Mm. the best way for them to get ahead. So yeah, that, uh, and that's like a big foundation of her, her point that we should offer women education and the ability to make something of themselves as opposed to just partnering. So it's just, yeah, it just really makes me think about the what like, again. What Jane Austen is incredibly good at is providing that really astute and sharp social commentary. I gave it three stars in the end because I did enjoy it, but I think for, just for me personally, I just like a little bit more plot to keep me going because obviously it does take a while. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was really charming and funny and. I rooted for Catherine the whole time, even though when she just got herself into these silly situations and, you know, crying at how silly she must look to Henry Tilney. I just thought she's... I still <laughs> yeah. rooted for her all in all. And then obviously, you know, she finally gets the man at the end of the book, as most Jane Austen books tend to end. Yeah. Yeah, thought it was really, really good. And now it's kind of made me think I'm going to try and tackle a few more Austen books because I've only ever read Pride and Prejudice and now Northanger Abbey. They're the only two Austens I've ever tackled. So now I'm not afraid to tackle any more. Yeah, I really want to read Emma. So maybe you and I can read Emma together. Yeah, because they did a film a few months ago. They did recently, yeah. And it looks good. 
You've been listening to Back to the Books with Isabel Flynn and Karen Sanger. If you enjoyed listening, feel free to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform and leave us a rating or review. So listen to you next time. Wait, what? <laughs> Why did I say that? I... <laughs> How did we get it so wrong? <laughs>